ready? Okay, great. So you can take roll and um, start our recording. Do you want to call at the time? Yeah, the time is 5.34. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Lorita Mellon? Here. Niha Banger? Lucia Angel, B. Franks Walker. I'm here, but I'm gonna block out because I've got a real bad sinus attack today. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry to hear that. Richard Harvey Jr. Eric Murphy. I'm here. Mark Smith. <laughs> Khalil Toki. Ali Yesin. We have a quorum? Yes, we do. Okay, great. Well, um, before we go on to approve the minutes from uh, the last meeting, I just had a, a thought that I wanted to share with everyone. Concerning um, all these, uh, all the Asian crime that's been going on, the hatred, the hate crimes, etc. Um, I remember that when Black Lives Matters uh, first started coming out, um, all the doctors at, at Highland, not all, but several doctors at Highland, made a statement for the press um, about how they felt, uh, how they supported the Black Lives Matters um and I, I was wondering if they were going to do something for the Asians as well. I'm just curious. This is Asian um, Pacific Islander Month as well. Yep. So it would kind of fit in. Perfect. Damon, time. do you know? Or Heather or anyone? Does anyone know? I do, yes. Uh, uh, there was a message that was sent from the physician, from the graduate medical education, the medical staff, and Mr. Jackson also uh, posted a message about about that specific uh, uh, issue. Uh, oh, yes, awesome. absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm Ghassan Jamaluddin. I'm the chief medical officer. I'll try to attend as much as I can from the meeting, just for the record. Oh, glad to have you. Thank you. Okay, so um, can, uh, can I get a motion to approve the minutes from our April uh, 2021 meeting? I move. And uh, here. Eric? <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Okay, and anyone second? Second. Thank you. Hi, Niha. <laughs> okay. Very good. Damon, you're here, correct? Correct. I'm here. Hi, Damon. <laughs> Hi. Okay. Um, our next item is uh, um, C, which is uh, our medical director is going to give a report and a discussion. Um, so, Damon, I will turn it over to you. Thanks so much. Um, this month, I'm just going to go back to the more informal style without uh, having a PowerPoint. Um, okay. Although, um, I don't know exactly what format we're going to use going forward. Uh, 
I anticipate starting our strategic planning process um, in the next meeting and kicking that off more formally. So um, just to remind you all, we have a requirement that every three years, our health center board participate in strategic planning for the health center. And um, that planning process uh, includes um, establishing priorities uh, for capital expenses um, over the next three years. So things, you know, building out infrastructure that may include like IT systems or equipment mm -hmm. or buildings or those kinds of things. So this is a process where we'll consider those kinds of ideas. And then the other minimum requirement is to set financial targets for, um, for the homeless health center. Um, so I'm anticipating using this time, um, starting next meeting and moving forward, to really focus on the strategic uh, planning process. Um, okay. As well, you know, COVID um, has really shifted into, um, you know, really this longer term sort of um, approach. I think um, we've reached a, a time in, you know, across across the country here in our county, as well as in the homeless community, where we don't have, um, you know, the, the same demand for the vaccine that we had really initially when the vaccine came into effect. We don't have the large numbers of outbreaks. Um, so we're in more, we're transitioning toward more of this new normal mode. You know, we're still not there all the ready, but we're transitioning to figuring out how we do surveillance testing for the coronavirus versus just outbreak response for the coronavirus, figuring out how we vaccinate people in an ongoing way and continue to bring folks you know, uh, to the idea of vaccination who um, who may need more conversation, more more um, discussion about it before before they want to get vaccinated. And so what I what I'm going to do is um, forward you all the um, coronavirus um, uh, summary that the, the Health Care for the Homeless program puts out on a monthly basis, which has been coming out a little bit after this meeting, quite inconveniently. Um, <laughs> so I figured I'll just forward that to you. It's a really good overview of what's happening in the homeless community you know, with response to testing, you know, uh, vaccination response. And then I can send the okay. link as well to um, to the, the hotel, the, the plans for the sort of COVID hotels that are housing folks who are at high risk of complications. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's where I think we're going to go with the COVID, uh, you know, reports from here. And then, um, and then I just did want to highlight a couple sort of pilot projects that we're undertaking Really, you know, with, within the, the framework of the, the budgets that you all have approved and the, and the programmatic elements that you all have approved, but looking forward toward things we might want to engage more um, as we enter our strategic planning process. So just a couple things that Heather and I have been working on with partners in um, Alameda Health System. Um, one is that our new dental director um, has been really, really interested in responding to the incredible high need for dental services among people experiencing homelessness. So I think you all have seen needs assessments probably repeatedly that show, you know, dental needs as number one on the list, almost no matter how you slice the data. And, um, you know, really fortunately, we have Dr. Charmaine Ng, who's had a lot of experience in homeless services in, in uh, dentistry before, and she's recruited another, uh, another dentist, Dr. Joshua Hall, and so we're working together to figure out how to do um, some dental outreach and assessments to some of the shelter partners that we already visit. So it's, it's a bit of a pilot within the mobile health program, um, but we hope it's going to extend, you know, eventually to um, really a more robust response to these dental needs um, over, over time. So I expect that as part of the strategic planning process, you'll hear a little bit about that. But what we're going to, you know, try to have underway in the next month or so 
is a combination of the mobile van and then potentially an outdoor dental clinic going to likely one of the larger either hotels or shelters in the East Oakland area where we know that, you know, there's a large homeless population um, to start just doing dental assessments and then referring into um, Eastmont Clinic, which has uh, Saturday hours um, for, for dental care, kind of following on some of the models that I was a part of developing when I was with the, with the county. Um, so we'll have, you know, we'll just have some of those attempts to kind of work through some of those workflows and work with some new partners and see what it looks like and help us figure out how we can, you know, invest intelligently in, in growing that kind of service to the community going forward. Um, and then a second, um, a second uh, pilot project underway is um, really, I think we've, we've talked to you many times about how, you know, mobile health, um, the numbers have, you know, gone down significantly in this, um, in, during the pandemic. Um, of, you know, patients that we serve and, and visits that we see on the mobile van, largely in connection to the fact that, you know, many of the shelter populations have become cohorted and stable. So most of the shelters we used to visit would have, you know, a certain amount of turnover. And that meant that there were new people to see, to be brought into care potentially. Um, I think the shelter model hasn't just changed necessarily for the coronavirus pandemic. I think there are things about the shelter model that look like they're going to continue, you know, um, we're going to continue to have more stable populations and homeless shelters moving forward. Um, I think beyond that, you know, we've also done some quality improvement work trying to connect, you know, really figure out how we optimize the connection to primary care from the mobile health clinic mm -hmm. and realize the incredible limitations of having patients have to transfer from a relationship with the first provider they saw, who's typically Wanda Johnson, our nurse practitioner on the van, or myself or Meg Moser who covers sometimes, to seeing a provider, a different provider in a primary care clinic. And that often we just don't, that gap doesn't get bridged. So people will tell us, yeah, I want to visit. I want to, I want to get into primary care. I want to do this. And then, you know, two weeks later, even though the visits are available in a pretty reasonable amount of time, you know, usually within one or two weeks, um, we have, you know, incredibly high no-show rates for those, for those visits. And we're not really, our, the way the model's designed right now isn't really bridging that gap. So one of the things we're going to do is establish a clinic uh, practice for Wanda Johnson, our nurse practitioner, at Eastmont part-time so that she can start to pull patients into her own primary care practice there. And we want to see if that's going to, you know, that's going to give us a little bit better uptake in terms of people actually coming, coming into primary care and being seen in their primary care visits after having been seen in the urgent care service. Then we also think what we can parallel, you know, do, do with that in parallel is start to establish relationships with some of the shelters where we have people who are staying for longer periods of time and where really being in a shelter can be sort of a period of time where people get on their feet, get established with the sets of relationships and benefits and primary care services they need before moving on to, um, to permanent housing. We've seen some of that happen with, you know, the, the hotel model over the pandemic. And so we're wanting to see kind of how what we've learned in the pandemic might affect mobile health. Again, all of this is right now within the budget constraints of the mobile health program. These are not, you know, um, these are not, you know, changes to any positions. They're not changes to any, you know, contracts or agreements that we've made. But I think it's experimentation that we're wanting to do kind of inside the framework we have to inform the strategic planning process moving forward. So I want to just, you know, give that report to you all and entertain any questions or comments that you have um, and then know that we'll be launching into, you know, to the strategic planning process uh, at our at our next board meeting. Stephen, I have a question. What's what's happening with the mental health? Uh, do you have any, you mean? Specifically any, like specifically? 
Well, um, if, if our patients in the mobile health van need mental health um, assessment or counseling or whatever, how do they get it? Do you refer them somewhere? Do you refer them to Highland or? Yeah, so for those folks who fall within the mild to moderate spectrum of, uh, of behavioral health needs, whether that's in the substance use side or, um, or a mental health side, um, so depression or anxiety or PTSD most typically or mild or moderate, you know, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder or cocaine use disorder or something like that, we would refer to primary care and have the integrated behavioral health in our primary care settings really, you know, be responsible for caring for those needs. For those folks we see who we believe, you know, have severe mental illness, usually, um, you know, a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, you know, people who are less kind of in touch with reality or who have really, really severe depression with suicidality, for example, um, or who have, you know, bad PTSD, but with, with really bad functional disturbances. Um, those folks we refer into the specialty mental health system, which is operated by the county, and we would refer those folks directly into that system. So usually we'd call Access, I think probably a lot of you have heard of Access, and, and make a re direct referral there for mobile health. So still, um, for, you know, mild to moderate needs, they still have to go through primary care then to get the mental health, right? There, there isn't a direct referral from mobile health to, for example, like the Beacon Network of Providers. I think it's, it's um, to be frank, the referral even from established primary care to external therapy resources, for example, mm -hmm. um, for mild to moderate illness, it, it's, it doesn't, um, the yield is very low, the people who actually make it to the other. So it's kind of like mobile exactly. health primary care. You know, it's probably mm -hmm. a, on the order of 10% of folks who we try to make those referrals who actually get into community community therapy. Yeah. So practically speaking, I, I, I don't know that the, that the policy would say that we have to do that, but I think the most effective way is to is to have people seen in integrated uh, behavioral health services that are that are you know happening in our clinics with uh, with licensed clinical social workers. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I just want to add to that. Thank you, Damien. Uh, thank you for that. Um, that's what I also want to add to uh, is like you know access. I use access a lot, you know, and you know, and unfortunately sometimes access can be really helpful. Sometimes it can, but sometimes we do have clients with severe mental illness, like you know. Okay psychotic episodes, schizophrenia, and all that stuff. Those are like, those, those clients, unfortunately, need high level of care, and so that would be a FSP, like FSP programs, full service partnership, and the only way a client can be part of FSP is going through access. Uh, so those referrals have to come through access. But like you said, you know, it's moderate, it's not really serious, it's just depression, then we're usually trying to connect them to the best way, so pathways to wellness, you know, those places. Right. Dr. J, I see you have your hand up there. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I'd just like to uh, highlight two important points related to this question, uh, uh, Madam Chair. Uh, one is that our primary care, we screen for depression. So it's part of the routine things that we do in our primary care. And so do we for our admitted patients. Uh, that's an important point to keep in uh, perspective. The second thing is I like to just uh, the board to appreciate the importance of having the primary care 
in circle, uh, especially for our patients with chronic illnesses, because many of our patients sometimes are on multiple medications and we would not like the behavioral health intervention uh, to be done in silo or isolation. Some of the medications might have some side effects and uh, vice versa also some of the interventions that we do in behavioral health might have an effect on adherence to important medications. So i just like the board to appreciate this, but the question is a very important one, especially right now in our, uh, uh, you know, facing of this uh, very big pandemic. Yeah. Thank you. I agree. Any other questions or, or comments? Thank you, uh, Dr. Jamaladeen. Okay. I did, uh, this is Eric. I did have one question. Is there um, um, a significant reduction in people getting back, back getting their vaccines, or or hesitation um, in um, amongst uh, homeless? It's hard to tell from just our numbers. That's a really great question. Um, in the you know the, in the mobile health um, program. So again, we're. Uh, we're just a subset in the mobile health program of the countywide response among people experiencing homelessness, which is itself just a subset of, you know, a much bigger response in the county that includes people experiencing homelessness and getting vaccinated just at routine sites. So, you know, our Highland site, for example, does vaccinate people experiencing homelessness as well. So answering that question with data is pretty hard to do, um, in particular because recently we've had the pause with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has affected our numbers and we've, um, we've also um, had, you know, changes to which sites we're going to and changes in, you know, staff just being out on, on leave. Um, what I can say is anecdotally, um, absolutely, we're seeing a slowdown in terms of the numbers of folks, you know, in, in the homeless program, just like we're seeing in, in, you know, in the national news media and, and, around the, and around the county locally in terms of, you know, shutting down the Colise the plans to shut down the Coliseum and things like that and consolidate and move toward um, smaller sites. I think the the style of vaccination that we've been doing in mobile health and that Healthcare for the Homeless has been doing, which is, you know, smaller clinics that are more localized, um, is the style that will continue for longer. It's the style that people are moving more toward and away from mass vaccination. So I think it, 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 um, it doesn't mean we're going to stop doing what we're doing. I think it just means um, we need to, we need to keep trying to refine that model and figure out how to, how to do it better and um, we have moved to doing a little bit more education, like balancing a little bit more education. So we've had some visits where we're going to a site and we're not even contemplating giving a lot of vaccine dose that day, but really just kind of work in the room. We're going to go in, oh, yeah. we're going to have, have, you know, a, a short presentation on, you know, the, the vaccine and opportunity for people to ask questions in public, but then really also try to create opportunities for people to ask questions one-on-one -on -one of our community health worker staff and, you know, and, and of our lead vaccinators so that, people can start to, you know, get their own concern, their own specific concerns addressed, which I think, you know, we've seen time and again is really the main factor that determines whether people want to have the vaccine is if they've had, they've been able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a trusted messenger about the vaccine. So we've been trying to combine that element with the program model that, that we're using, um, you know, to, to address this newer kind of different population of people. Oh, great. Yeah, that's, uh, that worked with me. To, um 
what kind of convinced me to speed up the process of getting my uh, my vaccine was having that one on one with uh, uh, care providers. So I think that really helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We I have you know Dr. Avalada, who's the CEO of of uh, Roots, has told her own story. You know, she's had to she's had to have like scientists on the phone for like you know. <laughs> now walk me okay. through how this mRNA stuff works like you know what she wanted to get it done so I think all of us have our own version of, of needing to develop confidence you know by getting the questions we have answered mm-hmm. thank you for that I, I was curious I have a question that's a little bit late though <laughs> for the season but I'm wondering do any of our clients have children that are living with them and how do we handle that with the COVID, with the schooling, and everything that's connected with dealing with children. Um, so, obviously, our homeless health center includes children experiencing homelessness—not a large number—but we do have some folks who we serve, you know, at Eastmont, at Highland, at our wellness centers, um, who who are um, children themselves um, who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and um, I'm not sure that we have any uh, any sort of specific response that we've designed, you know, that, that's geared toward them. Heather, I don't know if you have any experience. There are a couple shelters that we visit specifically in the mobile health program um, that I know we've been to where, where there are families with children. Um, and, and so the vaccination, you know, has, has visited, you know, places where, where there, there are families staying. Um, shelters. Yeah, Heather, do you know anything about any of those experiences? No, I think you've um, you've tapped on it. It was just that there are specific shelters and even some of the hotel programs that included space specifically designed for families. So they they made room for families um, in their in their design for some of the uh, project home key, right? That's what it's called now. Right. Um, and then since um, you know, as far as the vaccination efforts, uh, when we are out. With mobile health, we're using Moderna and Janssen, which are for 18 and up. Uh, so right now, those are not vaccines that are for anybody under the age of 18. Um, and as we continue to think through, and as, as permissions come for Pfizer, et cetera, to be for younger age groups, I think that's when we're going to see or need to make an adjustment to how we're doing things to help people get vaccinated who are under the age of 18. Heather, yesterday uh, Pfizer yeah. was approved by FDA for 12 to 15, I think. Right. right. And, yeah. and yeah. B, was that what your question was about specifically with, with regard to vaccination? Yes. Yes. That and just how do we handle them with uh, schooling? Do we have a Zoom available? For, do we have Internet and Wi-Fi available for them to go to school? Are they going to a specific place to learn during this time still? You know, now, I, can't, I know the schools are just now starting to open up, but what has happened for the whole year? I can ask that question of our colleagues in the housing world and, and try to see if there's any information that, um, that you know, they've, they've put together on what's happening with uh, children. You know, the, the schools have an even different way of measuring homelessness than HRSA does or than um, HUD does. So um, it's kind of its own homeless silo in some ways, but I think that's a really important question that you pose. So I'll see what I can dig up and, and send you all something via email. Um, 
to, to let you know what's what's happening uh, in in the shelter world and the homeless response services world around around the children in school. Okay, thank you. And Damon, did you um, hear um, Gavin Newsom's proposal for uh, he wants twelve billion dollars to be spent on homelessness? Um, I think he said eight billion on housing and uh, three point seven on preventative measures, and then one point five on cleaning up the sites um, throughout the state. Yeah, I pronounced it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of the details and you know how it will roll out in, in our community. But I do think um, what we've seen with the pandemic in terms of being able to turn resources into better health outcomes for people um, mm-hmm. is you know it supports the idea of spending more resources on on homelessness. I think we've shown that you know being able to have uh, a safe place to stay is a foundation for folks to really get control of many different chronic illnesses. Um, we have somewhere, I think, on around 60% of folks who, you know, were um, living on the streets, qualified for being high risk of a, of a complication of COVID, moved into the shelters and who've been now exited to permanent housing. Um, I just right. saw a patient today, actually, who um, had been awesome. in safer ground and now has a one-bedroom in East Oakland. Um, who had been out of care for a long period of time. And that, I think that was my third primary care visit with her. You know, she's now, she's now living in an apartment and, and taking medication pretty consistently, um, much, better, <laughs> much better than before. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's a really, really good example of, uh, of what we can do. So, yeah, I certainly support, you know, the devil's always in the details, but I certainly support the thrust of the idea that um, yeah. we, know it, we know what to do with these resources if we can, if we can get them deployed locally. Absolutely. Any other questions? Okay. okay, I guess we can go on to um, item D, which is um, Damon's going to talk a little bit about this. Um, this is a continuance of what we discussed last month in our meeting about having the CAB be more involved in working with the um, Board of Trustees and our lines of communication, you know, how they, they should be opened up more and et cetera, et cetera. So I'll let Damon take it from here and he can tell you what's been happening there. I can summarize, but I think, yeah, this is, this is where we uh, definitely... The, the co-applicant board chose um, at our last meeting for Loretta and for Mark to be an alternative to the liaisons to this committee. And um, Loretta and Mark met with um, Heather and myself, and um, we um, used the principles that we discussed in the last conversation to draft this, um, this letter to our board of trustees. Um, Jeanette Dong, who's leading the ad hoc committee, to um, to Taft Bouquet, who's the chair of the board of trustees, and to James Jackson, um, really articulating the principles that you all set forward, and that um, that you know we were fine with Mark and Loretta um, to establish some sort of mechanism for regular input by this by this co-applicant board on things that you were going to be asked to approve later. So, for example, 
you know, if you're going to be asked to approve a budget, that there's a, there's a time and a place for you all to provide input into that budget and what your priorities are for the budget before it comes back to you for approval. Or if you're going to be asked to approve a sliding fee scale, that there's a time or a place for you all to provide input into the sliding fee scale before it's in front of you as an item to decide on. Um, I think the second principle was to establish some, you know, regular communication uh, between this co-applicant board and the um, and formal communication between this co-applicant board and, and the board of trustees to share governance. And the third principle was um, to um, really leverage our um, you know existence as a majority consumer board to support the the voice of other consumers in our system and other consumer boards in our system. And um, I think um, we got a response from um, our CEO that recommended forwarding this um, memo on to the county-led process to, um, to assess the governance overall of Alameda Health System. I think, as you all know, there, you know there's been a bit of, um, of uh, action in the relationship between <laughs> our board of trustees and change, yeah, um, and the board of supervisors. And, you know, we have a relatively new board of trustees and there's a process going on to figure out what does it look like to govern, you know, this roughly billion dollar institution. Um, and um, they, the county's hired a set of consultants, which we talked about last time, um, and uh, from, from health management associates. And so, um, um, so Mr. Jackson, our CEO, offered to forward this letter to the, to, to the county and to HMA so that they can really consider um, you know, our position and our principles as a, as a really important stakeholder in this process. Um, and I think uh, Trustee Dong chimed in as well, um, you know, supportive of that idea. Um, I think we have yet to see sort of how we might implement these principles directly in the relationship with the Board of Trustees. I think neither one of them has said much about that so far. Is that yes. fair, Loretta? Is there anything else you Yes, yes, no, absolutely. Um, like you said, he, he referred, uh, our CEO said we should refer to the county um, to get their input, I guess, or to, see, or, or to let them know that we would like to be involved in it, correct? Yeah. Is Mark on as well? I don't know if Mark is on the call tonight. Mark, are you here? Mark's not on tonight. No, he, he was for a second. I guess we lost him. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, In the hopefully something... I just wanted to mention, Loretta, that um, we provided in the packet today the... Um, the notes from the first ad hoc governance committee meeting. So that's what this is here. Um, so it had the minutes from their first meeting, the agenda for the second meeting that just took place, and then in addition to that, the HMA report that they had um, presented in this most recent meeting on April 29th. So that's all in your packet for you to review. And we'll say that they're their minutes from the first meeting are very thorough, so you can really get a sense. I know that after Mark and I attended the first meeting um, and we reported back, I'm pleased to see that their minutes really reflect um, everybody's comments. They're in a lot of detail, so you can read them there um, if you'd rather do that than listen to the meeting, which is also there's the recording available for you. And Loretta, it looks like Mr. Jackson's just joined our conversation here. Oh, great. Hello. 
Good evening. Nice Hi. to have you. Thank Hi. you. Thank you, Loretta. I, I just I wanted to check in. Um, I sent you the email over the weekend, and I just joined as Heather was kind of providing a summary, but I just wanted to make myself available to answer any questions you might have of me as well. Um, I, I think the, the email that you sent back to me was very, um, it, it covered all the details that, that uh, we were addressing and how we need to go from that point, from this point on. Um, I, I think and I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that we will have more communication and that our voice will be heard um, through this new board of trustees and everything, you know, this new change that we're going through. And I, I believe it's going to be a positive outcome, it's my opinion. I agree. Um, I just, and Heather, thank you for providing the synopsis. And um, I think this was overdue. The, you know, the Independent Health Authority was established in 1998. And so it's, you know, it's probably time for a reassessment. And so Loretta, to your point, um, I believe this will have a, a positive outcome, but you know we'll know soon enough. But I, I welcome the community advisory board's input um, into this process. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Does anyone have any questions about this? Sorry, this yeah, is one of the things that I think um, uh, we had wanted was was to really make sure that Loretta and Mark Smith, um, who's unfortunately not on the call today, would be able to participate in any ongoing meetings of the ad hoc uh, task force. I don't know when those are scheduled or, or how. I've gotten notice of them usually like one or two days ahead of the ahead of the meeting. Um, is there any opportunity for us to know earlier than that to make sure that, that we can stay aware of, of uh, those meetings? A couple of things. One is, um, yes, because I am actively involved in planning those, and so certainly you made me aware, and I can let you know as soon as I know. Um, Jeanette Dong is one of our trustees, and Jeanette is the chair of the Governance Ad Hoc Committee. I, I would welcome you having direct conversations with her if you were so inclined, but, but the reality is you have made a specific ask of me, and I'm more than happy to accommodate, and so if and when there are any further meetings, I will make it a point, Dr. Francis, to reach out to you as well as uh, you as the chair, Loretta. I'm happy Thank to you. do so. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Certainly. And I, I guess the other question that I have, I'm being Mark because Mark's not here, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is um, how do you have any idea for the county-led process what the timeline is for you know, I guess a, a formal recommendation or a formal decision of some sort as to whether, you know, whether they're going to put sure. forward a change. I mean, I, I would imagine it depends on which recommendation, the, the timeline in some sense, because some of the recommendations that are being considered would obviously take a lot longer than others. But I was just wondering if you could give us any sense of the timeline. Sure. Um, it's it's um, a supposition on my part simply because, again, we are kind of on the outside of this process looking in. But as I understand it, Supervisor Chan has tentatively asked to be on the agenda for the next full board meeting. So we, we are having our, our May meeting tomorrow. Um, she has asked to be on the agenda for the June meeting. And so I believe that they are starting to wrap things up. 
because I believe she's intending to come to June to present the findings. And so we're not at the end of the process, but we're getting close. And so I would urge you, if you feel that there are things that you'd like to express directly, this would be a great time to reach out to Supervisor Chen directly as the chair of the health committee and to, you know, share that information with her. Um, I'm confident that she would, you know, forward that to the folks from HMA for integration into their findings. Hey. And obviously, if there are more meetings that are scheduled, I will make it a point to let you know. I'm not aware of any more meetings at this time, and that's why I would suggest you consider reaching out to Supervisor Chan directly. Okay. Great. Um, okay. Are there any other questions or remarks? Okay. Um, Let's go on to item E then. This is um, a report and discussion on supplemental funding that Damon and we are going to present. So this is just a brief item that uh, Heather and I only became aware of a couple, well, we became aware of the idea that there was more funding available um, around a month and a half ago. Um, so uh, this is, this is part of the federal um, packages to respond to COVID that are going to community mm -hmm. health centers. There have been sort of a series of rounds of, you know, funds that are augmented. I think we've brought some of those forward to you all. Um, and, you know, we've had discussion here about how you all have sent a letter to the commission actually asking for us to be uh, much more involved up front in the planning. Um, and so we were notified really in, almost immediately when the notice of funding uh, availability went to Healthcare for the homeless. Um, we we unfortunately haven't really had much of a chance to develop any proposals for any specific amount of funds. Um, we've been asked to lay out some priorities by the Healthcare for the Homeless program for how much uh, or for what we would do with funding, um, without really knowing you know to what extent they're setting aside things for other things. Um, and so we had a brief meeting with them um, earlier this week. Uh, or actually, last, sorry, in the middle of last week, um, where we really said we wanted to focus on the, basically the two, um, the two sort of pilot areas that I talked to you all about earlier. So the first being um, capital spending um, out of the 600,000 or so that's budgeted for the overall health center. You know, that's, that's you know, including healthcare for the homeless and all their contractors. We don't know how much of that they might make available to us. Um, but we said, you know, we could use all of it. Um, we could use, you know, a small <laughs> amount of it. And we would want to put okay. it toward, you know, um, equipment and, you know, infrastructure that would really support dental services. Um, and that that would be, that would be, you know, we think aligned with, you know, the highest needs in our community that have been expressed um, and, you know, that we've seen time and time and again in, in our needs assessments. And then the second thing we said was um, we could absolutely use money to support Primarily staffing, you know, maybe additionally some elements of, um, you know, EPIC and other sort of infrastructure infrastructure changes to support Eastmont as being a hub for um, mm -hmm. for people experiencing homelessness that's that's more strongly connected to the shelters. So this is in connection with that idea, you know, of having our nurse practitioner actually have an established panel at Eastmont, and rather than only doing urgent care, really doing urgent care that pulls into a primary care panel, and so. Um, you know, I think if we were able to get some funding, there are a bunch of different staffing considerations and configurations that we might consider 
Again, the, the overall amount for that is $2.7 million that's going to the health center. We don't know what amount might be made available to us. I think anything less than allowing us to add a full-time FTE would be hard for us to figure out how to program. And we've communicated that back to Healthcare for the Homeless. And so they're going to be presenting to their commission um, their kind of high-level plan um, for the award. And I think it will be you know, budgeted and programmed more specifically and then over the next few months and we'll bring it back to you you know for to be to, to be a specific agenda item for approval um once we understand you know in more detail what's going to happen but those are the priorities that we've sort of put forward at this at this stage and we just wanted to make you aware as, as soon as we could around what's what's happening um and what our ideas are for how we how we use that funding again this is the place where i think when we when we are able to you know fully undergo our strategic planning process and look three years out we'll be able to have, you know, more sort of formal um, uh, responses to these kinds of questions that come up, you know, and and, um, and I think we're still really looking to, to um, institute more of the collaborative planning that, you know, you all have lifted up as a board is really important with the commission. Um, you know, our colleagues at Healthcare for the Homeless, um, just like us here are, you know, incredibly challenged by responding to COVID, I think doing fantastic work right. and so, it's completely understandable that, you know, we haven't been able to, to kind of do all the collaborative planning that, that we want to around these things. And so um, we, we just, we look forward to just making the processes better, you know, as we're able. Now, and design nurse practitioner, um, does she normally practice out of response in the adult clinic? No, she's, she's really dedicated to the mobile health clinic nearly full time now. Um, when she does occasionally practice in a, at a fixed site clinic, it is predominantly okay. at um, urgent care. Um, oh, okay. And so, you know, every, every once in a while she'll practice at urgent care. So she doesn't have um, a, a primary care panel right now. Um, and, um, okay. and so that's, that's the main reason for wanting to, wanting to establish care at Eastmont is that we think it's a, it's a central location near many of mm -hmm. the bigger shelters, near where the, you know, a large part of the homeless population is in East Oakland. Um, and so um, it's kind of a good place to pilot that idea of being able to Definitely. more firmly connect, you know, transitional care is kind of what, what it's referred to in some places. Yeah, there's so much there at Eastmont for counseling, for families. I mean, just it's, it's really full of lots of services. That's a good thing. Okay. Certainly, we're open to any sort of critique, or you know, I think, like I said, this, this is this is not here for an approval right now, but it will come back to you all for approval, assuming that we do get regranted some of this money from Healthcare for the Homeless. So, if people have ideas or thoughts, or there are other there are other priorities that have come up in the past, and and you think that's something that we need to consider. Um, you know, we're definitely, Heather and I are all ears to that at this point in time, and, and we'll, we'll try to um, work the planning process the best we can to, to get those priorities considered. Damon, do we have the ability to do mobile x-ray in the van? We do not have the ability to do mobile x-ray in the van um, right now. Is that something that is that you feel might be needed? You know, um, I think that um, as as I've you know been on the van again, um, I, I started out. You know, my first my first work on the van was in 2011 um, in the county, um, so it's been about 10 years that, that I've been involved with the pr program. 
And um, I think over that time, my experience of it, I, I, I really think that if we're going to move, you know, a, a sort of big and expensive, you know, group of equipment around, we have to have a really targeted clinical consideration for that. And I think that's where this idea around dental is coming from. We have some good models of dental programs doing that. And so we may actually want dental x-ray. Um, but I think we want to really tightly link the van to the particular type of clinical program that we're working on. And for me, more of the primary care considerations um, are about just developing relationship and not necessarily, you know, moving around equipment. It takes, it takes us about an hour to set up and about an hour to take down the van. And then okay. when you add drive time, you know, you really, you really lost a lot of the time that you can actually operate yeah. a clinic in a place. So um, we have to be really, really thoughtful about what it is we want to move around and what, what parts of the van we actually move. Um, I, haven't, I don't have any ideas off the top that are like, uh, if, if we had mobile general x-ray, we would use it for these things. That doesn't mean they're not there. I think I'm constantly getting questions from clinicians about about it, and so it's, it's always triggering new ideas and thoughts. And you know that's what happened with with Dr. Ng from Dental. You know, she said, "I think we can do this." Yeah. You know, I think we can too. Yeah, well, that's exciting. Yeah. I think it's exciting. Yeah. You know? So I think it's really important to stay open to the ideas that we get, and really to also move with the energy we have within our system. You know, a lot of a lot of our staff and a lot of our physicians. This is you know working with us is. Um, just tremendously exciting. It's a, it's a really um, amazing opportunity for them to, you know, to, to, to do what their hearts um, want them to right. do and what brought them to this profession. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very, very open to ideas, um, but I think I'm definitely, I'm definitely also wanting to process those ideas to the place of being really clear, okay, what is it we're trying to get out of, you know, out of this pretty cumbersome and expensive tool? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about the dental pilot program. I, I think that's that's excellent. I know there is a need for that. That's very exciting, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Hey, um, Lorena, okay. can I ask a question? Hey, this is Lucia. Sorry, I was a little bit late. Hi, Lucia. Okay. Um, uh, Damien, just a quick question about um, any are there any criteria in for the funding, um, I'm just wondering, uh, will it depend or might it depend how closely aligned we are with kind of what their goals or criteria for this money is um, that, you know, would determine how much money we could receive? Um, uh, I'm just thinking in terms, it, it sounds like it's related to COVID relief money. Um, it, did they kind of outline anything in specific, or is it pretty broad? Yeah, the constraints the from HRSA are pretty darn broad. Um, okay. So there's something like expand infrastructure or services is like one of the bullets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and then I think I think for you know for healthcare for the homeless in the county, what we've heard from them is that um, they're really interested in um, sustaining their COVID response. You know, they, they've been on a shoestring with a lot of extra hours, um, you know, and, and borrowing extra hours from Wanda Johnson and me and other folks. I mean, we, we've, been, we've been really shoestringing a response to, to COVID for a lot of the pandemic. And so they know that we're going to need to actually do a lot of those things ongoing. You know, we're going to have to have ongoing surveillance, for example, in the shelters. 
Um, COVID's not going away, right? We're gonna have infections that pop up in congregate living situations, and we're gonna need to figure out a way to deal with that. So among their priorities is figuring out sort of how to stabilize and sustain the COVID response in ways that I think still haven't been done, you know, on, on their budget and the budget of all their contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the one kind of clearly articulated priority that, they, that we've heard from them that makes total sense, you know. Um, and I think outside of that, I think, you know, because of COVID and because we have yet to do our strategic planning, I think we're still in the space of kind of operating on, you know, our best ideas. I mean, fortunately, you know, Heather and I have been doing this a long time. We're not coming to this like, oh, we don't have any ideas, but mm-hmm. we certainly would love to, you know, involve you all more in that and, and involve, um, you know, our colleagues across our own system as much as possible in, in getting to these better ideas about what we might do um, to, to expand our services or and infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Okay, then um, our next item on the agenda is um, letter F, and Heather is going to be speaking on um, the program report. And I shall say, speaking of infrastructure and systems, uh, the program report is going to talk a lot about our infrastructure and systems. Um, and how the homeless health center really is part of a larger system of Alameda Health System. First, I'm starting with the health center compliance. So back in September of 2011, we had a, I'm sorry, it was September 11th, 2020, um, that we had a visit with our county partners. They did a monitoring visit related to our finance department. And at that time, we reported back the action items that were required for that visit. And some of them are coming due June 30th, and that is why I brought it back to this uh, program report again. Uh, one of the items that is, I've also attached the action items um, in the program report. So if you, um, you don't need to do this, Brenda, but in your own packets, it's the sheet that happens after uh, the program report finishes. So one of the items is around the correction of the description of our grant dollars that come to Alameda Health System. So there's a specific number that's associated with each federal grant. It's a CDFA number or a CFDA number. So those three, those four letters in some order, starting with C, ending in A. Um, and the number description in our single audit had described our grant as a training grant, which was not correct. It should be described as a health center grant. And so we gave that feedback back to our um, our accounting firm, uh, Moss Adams, that's pre- preparing the single audit. And so they have made that correction in the document. The document isn't going to be finished until closer to June 30th, which is why uh, we gave them that date of June 30th to have it submitted to them. And so we're on track to get that done by June 30th, and we have confirmation via email from Moss Adams that the correction has been made in that document. The other um, correction that needed to take place is regarding our policies and procedures from finance. Um, specifically, we had a an accounting policies and procedures manual that we provided to them that was out of date. And uh, I did not have anything that was more in-date to provide to them. So we've had conversations with the county since then and with our own finance department to determine which specific policies they would like to see in order to meet that compliance. And so the finance team and I are working on that now to complete that item also by June 30th, 2021. 
Um, so we met several times last week and this week as well to help get those policies um, in place. And in some cases, it's just a matter of needing them to be updated. Um, there, in each of our policies, you know, you guys recently did the policy for the, the sliding scale fee program, and it needs to be reviewed every three years, for example. And so some of our finance policies and procedures, their review date, review date had come up and passed and hadn't been renewed. And so we need to just clean that up a bit um, administratively. Next up, you'll see our mobile health and what's been happening lately. And you can see we added our numbers for our vaccinations. And you see that the first month of March, we had done 223 vaccinations. And in April, we did 116. Um, and that, that number decreased. Part of that um, is related to the pause that took place, the brief pause. Um, part of that also is related to just the, the, I would say we went out with a big bang. And then we steadied our ship. And we return to some sites to provide second doses and things like that. And so it's um, a nat I'm going to call it a natural decrease because we were able to vaccinate a lot of people up front. And now the demand is a little bit lower. Um, and you'll also see our statistics there um, for our enabling and medical visits are continuing to decline. And that is very much related to the fact that we are um, focusing on vaccines and less on providing clinical care. We intend to return to our regularly scheduled program of clinical care for <laughs> June. Um, so the county, you know, we were doing a lot of the vaccination, vaccinations and changing our schedule at the request of the County Healthcare for the Homeless program so that we could support their vaccine um, program. And um, they have also indicated that they're ready to release us back to uh, regular care starting in June. And we're hoping also at that point we're launching a pilot for mobile dental. Yeah. If you scroll down to the next page, I am pleased to report that we have been working hard on the both the registry and the reporting for our homeless health center. Um, we've been doing a lot of work on infrastructure there in Epic to make sure that we're counting the right patients. So we first we had started by building the registry so we could get the right patients. The next thing we were working on was um, building out the reporting system to make sure that we have the right types of visits and the right providers. And so that was a process that um, is closer to resolution that gave us these numbers here. So you'll see in, um, in January, you can see our virtual visits and our in-person visits. And so we did around 1,500 visits total. And you'll see we did more in-person visits than virtual visits. And then you'll see that those in-person visits start to increase as you go from January to February to March, right? So people are coming back into the clinic. If you look below, you'll see our unduplicated homeless health center patients. And, um, you know, I use the model which is, is reflective of our UDS services, which is our UDS report, our annual report, which kind of starts us fresh in January every year rather than showing us a full year. And so I'm going to do some corrections to that so you guys can see more of a full year, how it works. But in January, we had at that point 821 unduplicated patients. And then you see each month that we add more in individual patients to our, uh, to our group of patients there. But as of March, we have about 1,572 that are seen in our homeless health center. And then you can also see below that our um, health visits by site. 
So NWC, that stands for Newark Clinic, and you can see January, February, and March, the number of visits that they saw for people experiencing homelessness. You can see Mobile as well, and then Hayward, Eastmont, and Highland. One of the reasons Highland is um, so much larger than the rest of the sites is because of all of the specialty clinics that are included in uh, our and so Highland is serving a lot more patients in specialty clinics than the other clinics do. Um, can you scroll down a little bit more, Ms. Brenda? Thank you so much. Um, the next, uh, I, I divided that by types of visits so that you can see behavioral health, and this is January, February, and March as well, our behavioral health visits for patients experiencing homelessness, our dental health, mobile, urgent care, primary care, and specialty, and you can see that in general we're serving a very close to the same number of primary care as specialty care visits for people experiencing homelessness. We talk a lot about the age of our patients and our patients being primarily over the age of 50, and that's reflected here in our demographics of unduplicated patients, um, with 53% uh, are over the age of 50, and then that small 9% number of being 0 to 24, right? Then below that, you'll see our race and ethnicity, and we've talked about this before when we when we showed the demographics of patients experiencing homelessness um, served in our system. And with the 45% um, black or African-American um, demographic, as well as the 26% Latinx patients. Um, and remember, um, we've described this before as well, that this is, this is not matching, for example, the um, demographics or the racial and ethnic breakdown for the county of Alameda. And so we see an overwhelmingly large population of black or African-American people within homelessness. Other on um, the uh, 25 to 49 age, um, that seems to, that's getting larger, isn't it? From what we've seen before. I think the last time I brought it to you, I had broken it up a little bit differently. One of the reasons I broke it up into these three segments is it's one of the it's a, a segment that um, fits well with the UDS report. But I can break it down for you to see. Uh, different breakdown. For example, I could show you the 25 to 35 if you wanted to. Um, I could break up that 25 to 35. No, I just, I, I just thought last time um, that age range, I thought it was smaller from some report that I had been reading. And that the, uh, that the 50 plus was a little bit larger. I didn't know if trends are changing. No, I don't think the trends you are know. changing. I think that I had those two broken up into um, just two separate pie pieces. And right now you're seeing them all in one pie instead of two pie pieces. Okay. Thank you. Um, Brenda, I think that's the last page, right, of the demographics. Okay, thank you so much. Um, uh, there's our gender identity. Um, and, it, and we're so still predominantly male. Um, we are, I'm pleased to say, able to track our transgender patients as well or non-disclosed patients, and so that data is coming through. That was another part of the fix that we were working on. And then you can also see our patient insurance, and as we know, our um, Medi-Cal patients are our primary patients. And you can see that 6%, that green, 6% um, is our uninsured at the time of the visit. So most patients are covered by some sort of insurance or some sort of coverage. Is the green the health pack? 
to say? The agreeing can include health pack, yeah. So um, because it's not um, right, because it's not considered an insurance, there can be still covered by health health pack in the green section. That's correct. Okay. Um, I, I don't. I, I think I've provided our leadership and advocacy uh, spiel a few times. We're still. Um, I'm still working uh, with our COVID vaccination clinic at Highland and um, supporting our system with COVID vaccines. So that is ongoing. Um, and we are continuing to work on that mobile clinic redesign that Damon spoke about with our pilot for dental as well as uh, Eastmont as a potential hub for patients experiencing homelessness. So we're really excited about that. Um, by the way, hello everybody, this is Mark. Mark. Hey, I really apologize for uh, being uh, so late to the meeting. Um, I would imagine uh, where where are you guys um, where are you guys uh, in the agenda? Um, we are on item E. I'm sorry, item F. Heather is just um, going over the program report. Oh wow! Okay, I missed a lot then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I apologize. That's okay, but um, a copy of our letter is in there, Mark. Okay. Yeah. Heather, uh, quick question. Um, I just I was wondering how our patient uh, numbers um, compare to pre-EPIC numbers. I know part of the uh, hope was that with EPIC, we were going to be able to document um, homelessness a little bit better. I'm just wondering kind of how the numbers compare or have you seen any difference? Or... Thank you so much for asking. I I'm really excited about our data right now. So I have a lot of confidence that the patients in these data points are patients experiencing homelessness. And that's because they're based on the registry and the registry is very thorough in the way that it gathers patient demographic information um, and homeless status. Um, I think we reviewed a little bit about where the registry, where the registry comes from. So for example, um, clinicians can diagnose, can diagnose a patient as experiencing homelessness and they will feed up into the registry. Um, a PSR, a patient services representative, can be checking a patient in, identify that patient is homeless, and they will be in the registry as well. So since our, our system, the, the, the folks who are checking folks in and the clinicians who are providing care can't always see the same information about a patient. And so even if they can't see each other's information, um, that information will feed up into the registry and they will get included into the registry so that we uh, will see them at that point. Um, also, we've been doing a lot of work on cleaning up. I think um, I described at the beginning that making sure the right departments and clinicians are included in the report. And so even from the last time we used EPIC, I'm going to say for UDS 2020 as compared to 2021, I'm also very excited about having the right things in there. So the right types of visits, the right um, clinicians are included. We found a gap. Um, in our system that we're working on. So the gap is that uh, in order for them to be counting in our report, 
the provider needs to be designated as a UDS provider. This was a gap. We did not have all of our providers with the mark that says they were a UDS provider, so they weren't coming into our report. So we don't currently have a system when a new provider comes on board to make sure that they are identified as UDS or not. So this is kind of the next phase of refining our reporting, is making sure that there's a system that allows when a new provider comes in, that they get added to the UDS reporting structure if appropriate. So not all providers need to be added to the UDS reporting structure, but many of them do. So we're fixing that right now. We're also finding um, recently, because we're really drilling down into the details of these reports to find out where those gaps are. So. Um, for example, I went into the report and I found a visit. I found I'm like I found my patient. I'm looking at their visits. Why isn't this visit included in the report? So I'm looking at um, a lot of details. Um, only one visit per day counts for a patient if they're in our system. Um, so if the, if the patient saw a nurse and then the patient saw a provider, um, it's whoever they saw first that counts. And so in that case. We counted the nurse visit, but we didn't count the provider visit. And so we're working out that as well to see how we can prioritize things. So we're getting into the nitty gritty, um, which means that I have, I'm going to say, ever more confidence that is accurate, correct, and reflecting what's happening in our system. Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. Can I forgot. Um, you guys asked for a report also on um, patient self-pay patients last month, um, and so I'm continuing to work on that. So we don't have currently a good report that allows me to pull that information, and so it's being built. Um, so I do hope to be able to report that information to you soon, and we're working on building that report. Um, Heather, do you know, do we have any public comments tonight? I don't see any public in the room. Um, um, no. Uh, this is Mark. I was wondering if Loretta and um, Heather, if you guys could uh, wait a few minutes after the end so I can just talk to you, uh, talk to you for a minute? Sure. At the end of, at the, end of the meeting? Absolutely no problem. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I think that's it then for our meeting. Did you want to ask for any board member comments? Um, are there any board members, any CAB comments? No, I didn't. I, I think I, I'm a... Uh, I'm a non-voting member, but I think I still get to comment here. I just wanted to recognize um, <laughs> Mike Moy, who um, was really instrumental in setting up this co-applicant board um, at the beginning and, and in, you know, developing this really complicated governance structure, which could, could only be a pain. But instead of, <laughs> maybe it's a pain, but I think it also is really effective to, to have you know, um, this, your voice and your input and to have it structured in a way that really allows us to participate in, you know, the amazing mission of Alameda Health System. And I think um, it's just a tribute to Mike's talent and tenacity and heart. I think that, you know, that this thing has developed in the way it has. And um, 
he is retiring. I don't know if you all saw that announcement in your email, oh. but I just thought this would be a good moment to, to recognize, you know, his contributions to this uh, co-applicant board. Yes, I agree with that. Hey, uh, Damon, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. I, I'm sure he would appreciate that very much. I'll, I'll make sure I, I send that uh, along to him. Okay, anyone else have anything? No. No one? Okay, then I guess we can adjourn. Um, our time right now is 6.43.